0: What is up, Internet? Welcome to Self-Defense from All Angles, the podcast where we try to expand the conversation surrounding self-defense. I'm your host, Randy King, owner of 8020 Conflict Management Strategies. Today, we are talking with Dr. Omar Ahmad about the neuroscience around... Violence and self-defense. Omar is a world jiu-jitsu champion. He is a neuroscientist and he has a very interesting take on things when it comes to self-defense and the issues with memory and our ability to accurately remember things that happen. All of this falls into his study. Also on the paid portion of the show on Patreon, Omar tells us a crazy story where he was involved in an incident in a hospital during his younger years and a patient made some pretty crazy decisions. So if you want the bonus content, don't forget to jump over to our Patreon. There you will find bonus content from every single episode. If you, your organization, or your company are looking for more information when it comes to proactive self-defense that is education-driven, I'm available for workshops, seminars, and keynote speeches for your group. Now let's get to the show. All right, everybody, for the first time on the show, we have my friend, Omar. Omar, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: My name is Dr. Omar Ahmad. Uh, I have a clinical doctorate in occupational therapy and a PhD in neuroanatomy with an emphasis in neuropharmacology. I've been doing judo and jujitsu and wrestling since I was about three years old. So I've been in it most of my life. From a self-defense standpoint, I bring a little different perspective to some of it. I don't consider myself a self-defense expert, but I consider myself self-defense adjacent, let's say. I have lots of friends in the, in the industry, and I've worked in the industry a little bit as well. But when I bring my perspective in, it's usually not as a self-defense expert. It's usually as either as a, as a neuroscientist or as a, a coach who coaches young men. But just from a perspective standpoint, I grew up in Chicago, I actually happened to be in Chicago right now at the Field Museum and in the 70s and 80s. And then uh, I moved to St. Louis. So I've grown up in two of, two of some of the most violent cities in America. And some say the world. When you talk, when you talk about gun violence, St. Louis is, one, is up there. And I mentor and raise young men uh, in these environments. And I have uh, clubs in these areas. And we work on on basically generating personal responsibility and helping people to avoid those situations that they get in when they get into those types of things. And we do it through sport. So it's a little bit different than your average self-defense curriculum.
0: That is awesome. All right. So, Omar, the first question we're going to ask on the show always is, what is your definition of self-defense? Like, how do you define it?
1: You know, so as an academician, there's a lot of different uh, ways that people go about looking at this. And there's a lot of people, the way that people approach it. but personally, when I look at self-defense from our perspective, from the judo, jujitsu, and wrestlers that that I train, is when I look at self-defense, it's the ability to protect yourself from harm. And basically, we do this through doing something. You have to do it by doing. You can't do it passively. And I look at this in a lot of different ways. And it's, I look at self-defense as a method of personal responsibility. So not only do you have to train yourself to respond in different problems and different, you know, uh, actions like that. But you can't be passive when it comes to any of these situations. I live in a city where people get shot. I live in a city where there's a lot of gang violence. I, I, and, and most of the people who are in my mentorship program, they come from some of the worst areas in the city, where there is a high mortality rate. And, you know, though Mike, like myself and a lot of other people of color, we've been targeted by the police, of course, we're the city that Michael Brown incident happened in, we have had a very challenging few years. We also just had a big riot at our jail facilities. And some of, my, some of the people who trained with me were in that area and in that time uh, when those things were happening. So with us, I look at it more as a background violence. As it, it, it underlies everything that we do. So when I say I teach self-defense is when we work with our sport. What it does is it teaches us and pressure tests us to react, right. okay? And it's taking an active role in making sure that bad things don't happen to you. Right. And that can happen both on the mat or it can happen off the mat. But really, it's it's that filling action.
0: I think that's a really interesting point. I'd like to walk out a little bit, which is... So in essence, to me, self-defense is closer to safety training than it is martial arts, at least the brand of self-defense that I teach, right? Because the goal is some zero events, right? So no event happens. And I think it's really interesting what you brought up there was you can get hurt as equally off the mat or on the mat if not maybe more on the mat while doing your safety training right so there is a level of risk to learning these physical skills in order to protect yourself any thoughts on that
1: yeah absolutely
0: as a matter of fact
1: uh, you know it's it's kind of it's an inoculation right Right. the harder i train on the mat the easier any other thing is going to be right so well, the interesting thing is, is that I know you've worked as a, as a bouncer before and I've worked in clubs too, as well. And um, you know, just being around my clinical doctorates in occupational therapy, but I did uh, my, my training in burns and trauma. And so I've spent time in the emergency room, acute psych wards, the surgical intensive care unit with lots of people who are going through crisis and things like that. And I, I find the physical confrontations just as ubiquitous in the uh, hospital area as i did as a bouncer but one of the things that you hated to see was when you had to take someone out and you go over to 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 make contact with them and they go down into a wrestler stance (laughs) right you know it's going to be a long night it's it's (laughs) and it's not that wrestling is even considered a martial art in this country very much which is insane yeah right right it is probably I, I always encourage my judoka and my jujitsuka and all those sides to, to, to train in wrestling when they go to high school is right. get on your high school team. And of course I've been a, a high school three A and four, a wrestling coach for the past seven, eight years. The interesting part of it is when you threaten a wrestler and they instantly, they drop into that stance. Yeah. That's because it's one of the few sports that overtrains the basics. Right. And what is self-defense
0: any more than overtraining basics? Exactly. I think that to preach to the wrestler, as you already know, most UFC champs, if we're losing sport, even though sports, not a clean comparison, but most UFC champs have wrestling backgrounds. It's like 80% yeah. or some ridiculous number. And when we talk self-defense, there's an, a level of resiliency that is going to need to be built. And I don't think there's a sport out there that builds physical resiliency or repeatability as well as wrestling.
1: And it's the oldest sport in the world. You go back and watch anything. The first thing someone draws is a guy grappling another guy. Right. And the reason is, is because it encourages self-defense preparedness. And it, it just, it's, you can go as far back as saying, if you end up on your back with someone on top of you, A, they have the high ground, which is important in any kind of self-defense or any kind of, of martial uh, idea. They'll you know, Sun Tzu on down, I'll tell you, Thucydides will tell you, take the high ground. It's Obi-Wan it's Kenobi also. Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and if I have a lightsaber, you, you can bet I'm jumping on a chair. That makes sense. It's it just, just going to happen. Yeah. So you have the high ground. You have the most degrees of freedom in your movement. But the most important thing is if you're lying on your back with someone on top of you, you're dead. Right. In a martial sense. And so the sport, though it seems fun, you are training those very, very essential skills Exactly. Uh, that it comes to doing that. And you're training it without a gi. You're right. training it with, in a very practical sense that I can take someone down with a double leg, no matter what they're wearing, including a skirt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so if I ever get attacked by a Scottish Highlander
0: I was gonna you, say that catch. <laughs> well, and I could catch I think that's the thing right is while sport training there's a value to it obviously I'm not we're not trying to say there isn't that's ridiculous but and once you answer all the self-defense questions, the only questions left are martial arts questions what if they're trained what if what if right So I think the the lens you look through like you're mentioning right because like there's a lot of styles that will, play off the back but in a encounter where the environment isn't sterilized for competition being on your back might not be the best move i've seen even a lot of high level bjj people to pick on bj for a second say that in a street fight you wouldn't want to do a a bottom game because you could get kicked there's other people there's all these other factors
1: you can look at it from many different perspectives but you know to be honest i've I am a world champion in jiu-jitsu and heavyweight uh, black belt world champion, IJJF, in 2002. And I'm a a six-time national champion, four times in in, uh, freestyle martial arts and two times in judo. And um, I'm a top guy. And uh, I have a great ground game. I have a great back game. But let me tell you, top pressure is my favorite way to fight. And I was just talking about this with my students, is that everybody in the game back when I was competitive knew me as a bottom fighter. They knew me as a guard guy (laughs) and they're like, but you never teach us that stuff. I said, well, because you're wrestlers and top pressure is, I don't have to teach you top pressure. That's what you want. That's what you create your scrambles to do. That's what you create. And it's much more practical for you guys, you know, to do that. And it's great to do bottom technique technique. There's nothing like ease and bottom to teach you technique. Agree. However, however, the utility for that when you're off the mat and out of a tournament is low, that's, you know, that that's what the other thing is, is that when you get into a self defense standpoint, you know, and we've talked about this before you and I have talked about this before the whole thing between affective and predatory aggression is the last thing you want to do in an affective type of situation is appear passive and falling Mm -hmm. on your back. And allowing someone between your legs, I can't think of anything that appears more passive right. than what you're trying to avoid in any of those type of conf- uh, c- uh, confrontations. So it, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it might even feed into the aggression. Who knows? I don't know. But
0: I think this is a great bridge right here. Can you explain to the listeners what affective aggression is, et cetera, sure, et cetera, so sure. they kind of understand what we're talking about?
1: Yeah. The classic experiment with it is with cats. Uh, and they put a little electrostimulator on it and they have one stimulator that goes to the medial hypothalamus and one goes to the lateral hypothalamus. And by electrifying these particular regions, what it does is it stimulates aggression. And in one particular area in cats, if they if they stimulate one of these two areas, the cat goes into what's called affective aggression. Now, this is the type of aggression that's used against other cats because cats really don't want to fight. They want to establish dominance without fighting. And I think of this as you know I think Rory calls it the monkey dance or whatever. Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't know those terms well enough to really. Uh, use those with any kind of regularity but But the the self-defense general
0: the self-defense general is social violence would be what you call effective violence
1: yeah 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 and so what it does is it makes you big It, it makes you appear strong it makes you appear dominant to prevent a fight the primary goal is not violence can it end in violence absolutely but the primary goal is not violence so generally the outcome is not violence they don't want to actually perform violence. The outcome is I need to look bigger and better. I need to get your resources. I need to do whatever. But it's you're putting on a show to make sure that's why they, they yell when they pull the gun out, right? When they pull the gun out for your wallet, they yell because they want to show dominance. I'm willing to hurt you. So give me what do what I want you to do. Well, you stimulate the other area, and this is called predatory violence. And so, so in the first one, the cat's all puffed up, it's hissing. It's backs arched. It's making itself as big as possible. This is the, you know, the letterman, the varsity letterman in the bar who's pumping his chest up and got all his buddies yelling behind him and he's going to push you and you're going to push him and he's going to push you, right? The goal is not violence, it's dominance. Now, In predatory aggression, on the other hand, I think of this more as uh, some of the young men I've worked with in the uh, prison system, who, if you see someone who's going to kill you in the prison system, they are not going to make themselves big. They're going to make themselves very small, very quiet, very unobtrusive, and they're going to brush past you and stab you in the kidney. Well, predatory violence, when you stimulate that in the cat, that's when the cat gets real small. It pulls its arms in it puts its head down it starts crawling it's real quiet eyes are real big what's it doing it's going to attack to kill you and the goal is 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 predatory violence it's not a show it's not to establish dominance it's to kill you and eat you Mm -hmm. and so those would be the two big area the two big differences in violence that we can replicate you know, across the phylogenetic scale on lots of different animals. And, and let's face it, we're complicated monkeys when it comes to primatology. And one of my mentors was a big primatologist. So I've studied a lot with the, with non-human primates and it's, it's interesting. Right. We're not that different.
0: Which, which makes sense. So I love all of this. This is such important information. And the, the nuance you bring to this is always so important, but let's boil it down. Let's say <laughs> you had 10 minutes to talk to a group of people what would be the top tips for self-defense that you would give them both on the proactive side aka soft skills and on the reactive slash action side
1: yeah sure uh so i this is one that a lot of people ask of me and everything is like what's the one technique you you teach and things like that so let's let's talk about that later but the first thing is when you talk about self-defense is avoiding things entirely and and you know people talk about gut and all that kind of stuff well this is where neuroscience comes in is humans are lazy and uh, the, the reason is is that by making assumptions about people and situations we can use less brain energy and our brain is our most metabolically intensive organism organ that we have and so we are natural meaning makers we're natural algorithm creators and so when we look at somebody We don't want to consider all their individual eccentricities, all their individuality or anything like that. We want to instantly put them into a bucket. That way it takes less uh, mental energy. Same reason why we get in habits is that we don't want to recreate things every day is if we get in a habit, we have to put less mental energy into it and we take care of our needs that way. When I look at so when people say, oh, I had this gut feeling or this and that uh, memory is very unreliable. and so. You know, and it's very pliable. You can change it very easily. As a matter of fact, there's a little experiment that I looked at when uh, creating something is that they had made a scenario that police officers and uh, corrections officers in my case were entering in. And I was the, you know, I kind of made this little video and I, I, I did something like that. And I kind of sprung it on right. in that we were, we were going around and they were watching it. And I was playing an officer and I shot a potential suspect. And then I yelled, stop or I'll shoot. And then a bunch of stuff was happening at the same time. Right. And the majority of the officers would automatically put in the correct order that they would say he yelled, stop or I'll shoot. Suspect didn't stop. He shot him. Interesting. Why, why is that? Well, because we're, we're natural meaning makers. It didn't make sense Mm. that I would yell stop or I'll shoot after I shot or simultaneously. It's an anecdote. It's not really well, sure. well thought. It was just kind of a little experiment I was, I was doing. I don't know. But this happens all the time when we talk about uh, witnesses. Right. Witnesses have lots of, and this is why lawyers have a job, is that memory is pliable. It changes. It's colored by the way that our experiences are. Well, so in a self-defense standpoint, you have to break this mentality of what's safe, what's not safe. And so you need to be very aware of your surroundings. You need to watch about what's going on. You can't fall into the habit. I walk this way every day for work. So that's the way I do it. I don't even remember how I got home because I do it the same way all the time. Right. If you don't keep your eyes open and look around, and I'm not saying be paranoid, but just to be aware of what's around you. And you can do this a lot of different ways because I cue my kids to say, whenever someone's going to pass you on the sidewalk is just make a glance at their hand. Why? Make sure you're not going to get your pocket picked. Sure. And make sure that they're not going to pull close to you. Well, once you cue them to do that, chances of you getting pocket, your pocket pick like that, very low anyway. Right. right. But it cues them to now, whenever anyone comes past them close, they look down at their hand. Well, that is awareness training. And it's given them a small technique that will draw their eyes out of that habit in which they've turned their mind off. They're thinking about something else. It gives them something to focus on while they're doing that. So that's just a little neuroscientific trick that I give them to do that.
0: I think that's super interesting because we look at situational awareness the same way. I think a lot of coaches are, I don't know, on purpose, maybe for money or by accident. They're scaring the poop out of people. They are, they're freaking them out. They're making them paranoid. And so the way we've kind of reclassified this is, stay curious if you're looking at everything you're gonna see the bad if you're only looking for bad you're gonna mentally burn out out of stress right so if you just stay curious be a five-year-old you'll notice when a new restaurant opens up you'll notice when there's a new poster there's a sale and also that weird person doing weird things i love that you have a way for people to understand that and like a quick trick because as you know we don't get people in the self-defense space. We don't get people for 10, 15, 20 years. We get them for a talk at a high school or, you know, I've done uh, presentations to like women's groups or businesses and they're not going to like put on the clothes and like train for 20 years, right? They're, they're going to, they want the quick stuff. I want to walk down the path of gut instinct and intuition because I do teach that. And I say that it's just a result of subconscious pattern recognition. What are your thoughts kind of on that?
1: That's exactly right. It, it, what it does is it's now putting people in those buckets, right? Right. If you have, but see, the problem is that bucket is racist. It's sexist. <laughs> it's, it's right. I mean, and it's all experience dependent.
0: You're, you're not, you're not wrong. Right. And that's the, I think there's a cultural clash with that. Right. Is the way I do it because I'm we're allowed to talk about your own people. I always say like if a biker, if blonde bikers are carjacking people and you see a blonde dude in a leather vest walking towards your car, like maybe treat it potentially as danger, but that's very hard to say to people, especially in today's culture. Yeah, and most
1: of my students anyway are people of color. It's great from the standpoint of now everybody's with everybody. Right. Right. I'm making kids who don't normally interact with each other interact on a physical basis um, in wrestling and judo and jujitsu and stuff like that, they're influencing each other in the most positive ways that you can do. Why take that and turn it into something shitty, right? You know, (laughs) and I tell people all the time, I'm a huge personal responsibility person is I don't care what you've done, where you've come from, what, what those things are. If you admit you're wrong, if you admit it and take personal, we can start somewhere. We can, Mm -hmm. we can do something. It doesn't mean I trust you. It doesn't mean I, you know, but we can work, I can work with that. You know, there's so much negativity when it comes to people of a certain color and a certain race, when they're, when they're, when they're interacting with other people. Right. Uh, The fact is, yes, if you are a person of color, you are going to be targeted by police in one way or another. So that tells me from a personal responsibility standpoint, make sure your underwear is clean. Man, don't don't be carrying a, a you know carrying a a, a lid of a uh, of hash with you. Okay, it's it's you know if you know you're going to be targeted, then make sure that you're doing the right thing. The second thing is those are excuses, mm-hmm. right? And they're valid excuses. It has absolutely been proven that redlining happens, that 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 over policing happens.
0: What is redlining?
1: redlining is uh, i don't know if this has happened up in canada but what it is is uh, after world war ii they started a lot of different programs to help the gis get money so that they could buy houses they could g- create generational wealth and this has been the one of the biggest things that has separated caucasian people from from other races in, in america and what they did was they basically drew red lines on maps and said african-american people aren't going to get loans in these areas oh and so uh, yeah, redlining is a, is a phenomenon by which they would get loan. Uh, white people would get loans in different neighborhoods and different things like that. And black people were not, were not and, and it, it was as far as there were covenants in neighborhoods that said that we will not sell to African-American people. Wow. And yeah, yeah. And, and it's uh, a, it a real thing. You guys have <laughs> reservations and things like that too. So True, it,
0: right it's, there's, it's, yeah, the indigenous here are very, you can parallel a lot to the, the African-Americans for sure.
1: And we treated them like shit too down here. So it's not (laughs) anything new, you know. I mean, as my wife's family, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, they'll they'll tell you all that stuff. They'll tell you all about it. So you never want to give people, so these are excuses. Right. So at the end of the day, if you're 70 years old and you're, you're, you're living on the dole and whatever and, and all this kind of stuff, well, you got a great excuse, but you know what? Nobody cares. Right. Nobody cares what your excuse is. Sure. You know, at the end of the day, you're responsible for whether you are successful in this life or not. And are you doing the things that will make you successful? Or are you doing the things that won't make you successful? So at the end of the day, I don't really care. I mean, I do. I, I care very strongly about it and I advocate against it and all right. that other kind of stuff, but I can't control no. what this person says about me, what this salesperson does when they follow me around in a place or anything like that. There are things that I can't do about that. What I can do is put myself in places where I've got an education, I'm doing the right things. Uh, it meaning that I'm not breaking the law and doing some other things like that, that I'm seeking better jobs if I don't have one that, that, that suits me and is, is, is pleasurable for me. And that's what I do a lot in my mentorship is I help people get to those points. And then if, I, if we reach an inflection point where something bad has happened or that, you know, they're being held out or school is, is not going right for them or different things like that, then, then we can intervene together as, as a community.
0: Right. And very interesting worldview. Have you seen the show? It, it's, trust me, follow me on this. Have you seen the show on Netflix called 100 Humans?
1: No, no. So,
0: the premise of the show, really quickly for everybody, is they take 100 humans and they run a bunch of experiments. And so, it's a survey based experiment. They have the same 100 humans, they put them in, It's actually a really fun show. They did a, a shoot no shoot test. And they, they set up the whole test, like, would you shoot? Would you not shoot? But really the whole test was based on the final test where a white person with a camera came out and a black person with a camera came out who got shot the most. Fortunately, but obviously the, the person of color got shot more. But the weird thing was the person of color they chose was the talent handler. So everybody actually knew that person as well. And they still took the shot. It was actually a really interesting episode. Um, if you get a chance to watch it, you do this all the time, you're probably bored by it. But I think it was very interesting for me because like it showed across the board because it wasn't these hundred people are not just off for of one demographic. It was people of color also chose to shoot that person who they knew because of like, because I would go to the buckets you were talking about, right? Humans are lazy, there's a threat. And it was, it was a phone, but I've been in a real life situation where a guy pulled the phone in that manner and we thought it was a weapon. Right. So luckily I didn't have anything on me to make any like really life changing decisions, but it was, it was super fascinating to watch the shoot, no shoot drill, which I think anybody that judges people under pressure should go through one of those. and do with reporters all the time. Right. But how bad, like one person, one, one person broke down mentally. And if, whoever you're picturing as the person that broke down, it was that type of person. They broke down mentally from from doing the shot because they didn't think they were like that, right? So yeah. I I find this intuition fascinating because if you go to self-defense in general, 90%, there's never always, but most stories start with, I had a bad feeling, right? And then progressed, I, I talked myself out of that bad feeling because of cultural reasons, worldview reasons, then I had another, you know what I mean? So I love that we can break down this intuition into that. So if you could break down intuition for us, like what people believe that gut instinct is, like neurochemically, what is that?
1: So, um, you know, the problem with the whole gut instinct thing and and what I find all the time Mm -hmm. is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. Interesting. Um, If I distrust all black people, let's Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. I distrust all black people, The one time that I have a bad experience with a Black person, I would say, my gut told me that this was going to be a problem. Right. But your gut said that every time you saw a Black person. Sure. Right. So, you know, uh, this happens with chimp and bonobo behavior as well. Interesting. Is they will have mass battles in between different quote unquote tribes of bonobos or, or different tribes of chimps chimps are more more likely than bonobos bonobos are a lot more love and let love than live and let live but uh, but uh, chimps will do this and they'll have these running battles in which they will attack each other and try to eliminate other tribes of chimps that are in the area. and a lot of times it's not from resource competition either because huh. it, it, they want they don't like them And a lot of times they won't kill them. What they'll do is mutilate them. They'll emasculate them, tear off their genitals, rip up their faces, bite their hands. And it will be to emasculate or hurt the other animals. Well, I mean, I I suppose you know tribalism helped humans survive way back when. And Mm. we're not that different than chimps when it comes to brain composition. So to me, it's no surprise that people tend to draw lines based on appearance and about size and about culture and things like that. But you recognize in the history of humanity, there were very few polyglot cultures. Most people lived in monochromatic, very stable cultures and colonialism wrecked all that. For everybody right. and i'm not i'm not just talking european colonialism i'm talking when the phoenicians decided they were going to take over the sumerians or whatever you right. know i mean it's 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 There are going to be different cultures that, right. that 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 do that type of stuff so from a historical standpoint it's probably more rare that people bred out differences right Than stuck with their own it's, interesting I so mean, this- I don't know. I'm no anthropologist. You probably need to get an anthropologist on to talk more about that stuff. I but- definitely,
0: that's, you know, I'm going to write that down. I want an anthropologist now. Because that's the point of the show, right, is talking to people that aren't just self-defense instructors. The way that we break down on my online course, self plug by that, is how we break <laughs> down um, paranoia and intuition is paranoia is something you think all the time intuition is something you feel in the moment so if you think that we'll go back to the bikers right if you think that when you're pouring your cereal every biker is evil then obviously when a biker offends you it it self-fulfills the prophecy but if you don't think that all the time and an elevator door opens and a biker freaks you out wait for the next elevator that's not paranoia because you're responding to the survival cues your brain is giving you does that make any sense to you well, as long as every time a
1: biker comes at you, you don't get on the next elevator, right? <laughs> <It's> like,
0: <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Right. There has to be some kind of stimulus. There to- has to be some sort of event.
1: Yes, that, event. Yes, that, or a trigger that 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 uh, you know fires off this this particular response chain. Right. And um, so, yeah, we, we call this response chain sensing, feeling, acting and so, uh, or sensing, perceiving, responding. In neuroscience, we look at that from an amygdala standpoint, which is kind of our anxiety neuron, uh, nucleus, I'm sorry. And uh, so you sense something, meaning that it comes into your sensory systems. You'll see it, you'll smell it, you'll hear it, whatever it is. You'll sense it. Perception is what we make of those senses. And then acting is gonna be our output or our response. And then it goes back into a circle where we sense, perceive, and act in that circle. I always look at things in, in the, when I look at the way other people respond and I've been looking this, people have been sending me some of these things, right. Is the Karen stuff. Right. Um, my son Tark is very concerned with Karen's because he has, <laughs> he graduated with his degree in phlebotomy and he works as a medical assistant and uh, had to be forward facing with the public. He did COVID testing for the past two years in our, right. in our clinical lab. And so he was confronted with lots and lots of people all the time, most of the time in crisis. He and I talked about it the first time he had someone who was, you know, you're not doing this right, or you should be doing more of this, or your test is obviously wrong, and right. blah, 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 blah. He didn't know how to respond to it. And so we talked about it for a while. And one of the things is, is that when someone responds like that, it tells me that they have had, they've achieved their goals by acting that way sometime in the past. And uh, this is just extra sauce, right? So if they know by complaining to the manager they're going to get their way, they're going to complain to the manager to get their way. Sure. And and this is this is regardless of of, of color or race or anything like that. So when I see someone who starts yelling at me to get their way. Uh, and this happens in the emergency room, this happens in, in the hospital relatively frequently, I say, okay, this person is in crisis. They're going on something. That, so I'm going to help them by providing them an option that is not confrontational in that way. And uh, I can think of just, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a client and um, one of my colleagues asked me to, to take a look at this, you know, to talk to this person because they didn't want to be seen by a white person. This nurse who had talked to me to go in to do this interview at first is World Her Eyes and all that other kind of stuff. And I said, you know, there's a lot. Yeah, he's not wrong. There's a lot of evidence that in the history of, of medicine, there's been a lot of racially based medicine. And there's some evidence that actually quite a bit of evidence that says that uh, uh, outcomes aren't just poverty related. That, that the fact is, is they get treated by the healthcare system differently. Hmm. So maybe he's not wrong, but, you know, so don't just dismiss it, that he's being racist and dah, da da da. because there, there's actually some some legitimacy to this. And so I went in there and, and the first thing he did was threaten me. When I'm working with patients with psychosis, I'm a big guy. I'm 270 pounds, uh, I'm six foot two and I, you know, I work out six days a week. And so they, people can get really physically intimidated and and their response can be that act affective uh, aggression. They, they can say, I want to make myself look bigger. I want to appear tougher. I want to let them know that I'm not going to let him hurt me. And when I'm working with psychotic patients, this is when I end up with a lot of physical confrontations. However, this also is true of quote unquote uh, neurotypical or people whose brains are working relatively normally. Mm-hmm. They're just in crisis. Right. And um, and so I went in, and the first thing he did was he threatened me physically. Right. And uh, I said, and I just laughed, and I said, "Well, we're full of bad decisions today, aren't we?" It kind of took him back a little bit, you know. And I said, well, "Let's just get on with this and get out of here." And that right. was that. Right. <laughs> Is that I provided him an out. I provided him an opportunity to be in crisis. Right. Without consequence
0: for right. that. Yes.
1: And I could have called security. I could have had a cop come in there and chain him to the. Sure. To, the, to the bed. But instead I said, okay, let's look at it from his perspective. He doesn't trust the people who are working with him. He's had a history of not trusting with it. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's hard to tell people, you know, and when we look at people who haven't been vaccinated in this town, they're on both ends of the spectrum. They're privileged white people, and there are very poor black people who, mm-hmm. who have not been uh, immunized. And at the end of the day, when I look at someone who is poor and African-American and has decided they didn't want to get it because of the Tuskegee experiments, because of all these other things that have happened in the healthcare system, you know, I tell my students, look, history might be in their favor in this one, right? I mean, you know, I know you're not, you know, acting in that way. However, history may, you know, may prove that they're the ones who in fact have, have a little bit more stable ground to speak from. So I try to keep my mind open when it comes to that. The other thing is, is that if you don't, react defensively to offense yep um, it was like that aikido uh, turn the tiger all sure. that other <laughs> stuff you know I don't, I don't know about that but um what i do know is that is that being mentally ready right. for that confrontation makes it a whole different experience right. than if you go in there and are unprepared like oh i'm a good person i want to do good things oh my god how can they possibly treat me
0: like this that uh, makes total sense. I think humans always do poorly without a plan. That's why they do the safety dance on airplanes, that's right? right? So that's I right. think that's going to bring us the end of our time, unfortunately. So we got some stuff to promote. But first, as always, there's going to be a Patreon portion of the show. This segment is called The One Up. And why we're calling it that is what is my guests one up story they tell when they're at places right so their favorite story their best story. (laughs) So we're going to do the one up Um, you'll hear my one up story one day It involves uh, me in the Philippines horse milk and cannibals. Former cannibals. So we'll put that on the show one day, but we're going to listen to Omar. So if you want to get a little bit more with Omar, hear one of his best stories, jump on patreon.com slash Randy King live at the $5 level USD. And you'll get all of the extra content from this show and my previous show. So all the devil's advocates, all of the other podcasts I've done, plus every episode of everything I've ever done, including talking to savages is on Patreon. So I'm done with that. Omar, we got something to promote together, right? So what do you got going on coming up?
1: So um, on July 8th to 10th is the 2022 Worldwide Martial Arts Association's National Training Camp. And uh, it's a real special event. Uh, I put it on every year. I've been putting it on about the past 15 years. And through the United States Martial Arts Association, the Worldwide Martial Arts Association, we put on this national training camp. And it's not a talk-based camp. It is an action-based camp. It's for anyone with any interest in it, including police officers, firefighters, things like that, not to mention martial artists. Uh, We bring some of the best martial artists in the country and sometimes the world to come and train us for three days. It's a Friday, Saturday, and half a Sunday. And we keep the prices down. I put it on myself, so I try to break even every year. And so we're only charging $150 for two full days and one half day of training. We provide two rooms that are going at all time. We have a special guest, Randy King uh, and uh, Steve Jimmerfield. are going to be splitting uh, the room, too, for for the reality and self-defense aspects and the the police aspects of what we're doing. The other room is going to be primarily dedicated to traditional martial arts, judo, jiu-jitsu, I'm going to be teaching some combat wrestling. We're also going to have a couple of appearances by people. Last year, Charles Johnson came and taught a whole class. He'll, he'll be fighting in the UFC against one of the Dag- Dagestanis at the end of the month. So he's in training camp right now. So he's not going to be able to physically make it over to see us. But he's going to He's gonna be making a video appearance. And I'm talking to Tyron Woodley now, too, to come out and uh, and maybe drop by and, and say hi to everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, and, I'm excited uh, now. One of the coaches that I coached with uh, a long time in wrestling, was his first wrestling coach and so we we're good friends with Tyron and and he's absolutely outstanding here in St. Louis has done a lot for us and Charles is has uh, fought for me in in combat wrestling and and uh, I've known Charles since he was a little wrestler and so um it's great to see him him blowing up he's a three-time LFA uh flyweight champion and he's going on to the UFC now to fight one of the Dagestani's so uh
0: all right, well, that camp sounds stacked. If you want a link to that, just jump on at Randy King Live on whatever, and it's on my link tree. So that event is there. You can click, sign up if you're in the St. Louis area. Please come, say hi, do a class, do a couple classes, do the whole thing. I'd highly recommend it. There's so many people there. I'm, I'm getting a little special treatment. I feel I feel kind of like big timey because I get half the room with like the legend Sensei Jimmerfield, which he's probably one of the best, pe- the best martial artists you don't know. So you should definitely get a chance to train with him but on that note we are done please like share subscribe all the internet terms we want to share, uh, spread this show we are going to jump over to uh the one up with omar only on patreon thank you so much and we'll talk to you all next week thank you